He said, I can't afford to pay you a whole lot, but I'll put you on a small salary. And, and I actually spent the next six weeks in his business every day. And we made some major changes, turned it around. And he said, you're really good at this. You should consider doing this for other businesses. Hello, and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance. Scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello and welcome. Today, I'm talking to Andy Biting. Andy today has a very successful business combining digital and print. The idea for the print sprang from a conversation he had with Vern Harnish when he was on Vern's Birthing of Giants program at MIT that entrepreneurs in their industry need to own the ink. And so he set up a magazine for his then business, Green Village Home and Garden, sort of home and garden shop in Canada. He was also trying to scale that business. And just as the global financial crisis hit in 2007, he was investing $6.5 million into that business. And unfortunately, try as he, as he might, and despite what he thinks is a really good offer to the receivers. They foreclosed on his loans in 2010, April 2010, and put the shutters down on his business. So we talk about that and how difficult that was to cope with. And we talk about his new business and how he continues across the United States and Canada to give entrepreneurs access to owning the ink in their industry. A fantastic conversation. And you just get a sense of his frustration with the bank. But it's great that a business sprang from that disaster. Great conversation. I enjoyed it immensely. I'm sure you will too. My name is Andy Biting. I am the founder and CEO of Tulip Media Group. And I am also a certified scaling up coach and have been for about 10 years now. Andy, welcome. What does Tulip Media do? So Tulip Media... What we do is we enable businesses to compete in the marketplace and cut through the confusing ambiguity of how to market properly and to have your brand and your company positioned as a market leader in your industry. And the way we do that is we help you with custom publishing. So we will help you create, we'll do a, a competitive and a keyword analysis do a keyword optimization strategy for you and create content that you can publish and will help you publish on your website through email campaigns if you wanted to, to really increase your SEO for your, for your company with really strategic keyword optimized content. And then we'll kind of our magic sauce, we'll take that content and we'll integrate it across multiple platforms, both digitally and in print. So when you're creating great content, You'll have it on your website as blog and will be that constant source of, of content going onto your, to your website that'll help your SEO. And then we'll back it up uh, with um, client engagement strategies 
around printed newsletters and printed magazines. And we leverage digital and print to give you that digital marketing uh, muscle, as well as the, the longevity and the credibility that comes with print and the, the client engagement that can come from print. Huh. Does the print work because nobody does it anymore? Or has it always worked and people have just forgotten that it worked? It's a little bit of both. So print has always worked. And anything found in print is just more credible than anything found online. If you read an article in a magazine, you're apt to believe it. If you read an article online, you know, sometimes if it's too outrageous, you got to you, you do the first thing you do is you research to see if this is a spoof article or not. So it it has more credibility and, you know, it has more value than anything found online. Now, people have gotten away from print, I would say, over the last 10, 15 years, but they're starting to come back. And it's interesting. You see Barnes Noble and Amazon and so on. Are, are, are talking about how the printed book, real books that you can pick up and flip the pages, are in, the, the book sales are at an all-time high. Printed books are at an all-time high. But they weren't. They took a major dip, and now they're coming back up. So you're right in the fact that a big reason why print works is not only the credibility and the longevity, but it is less crowded. And the way I put it is that, and, and the reason why is it's not because there's, there are fewer people doing print, but that's coming back. That's starting to come back up. But what you're seeing is so many, everybody's doing digital. So digital just becomes you know, just this massive monster. And in fact, I read a stat the other day. It talked about how email marketing effectiveness has gone down by 47% over the last 10 years. However, print marketing effectiveness has gone up by 15%. So it's not that print has changed a whole lot. It's just digital has changed so much to make it less valuable. And the way I put it is that, you know, think of your most uncluttered inbox is that mailbox at the front door. You know, so it, it, if you want to stand out, that should be part of your mix. It really needs to be part of your mix. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, I have a similar conversation with clients about telephone and I say to senior figures in businesses I work with. I say, how often does anyone ring you? And they say, nobody ever calls me. I bet people still call them slightly more often than send them a letter. But it's just, it's just you know, as you say, it's the space isn't as cluttered. So are you creating, you're creating physical newsletters and you're creating physical magazines for clients? We are creating, yeah, customized printed newsletters, four, eight, 12 page newsletters um, and magazines. And we, we have small programs at four, eight, you know, 12 page, but most of our client partners, they'll work with us to create a 16 or 32, sometimes a 48 page newsletter or sorry, magazine. And actually I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of the story because it, it ties into scaling up. And so when I was going through my prior business in retail, when I was going through the birthing giants program, when Vern Harnish was putting it on, he talked about this concept. He said, you need to own the Ingus in your industry. You need to you be the one, you know, whatever your customers are reading, it should come from you. You should be the one putting out content. And I remember talking to him at uh, the MIT campus and one night, and we were in the retail home and garden. And he said, Andy, why aren't you guys publishing a series of gardening books or publish your own magazine? And it was interesting because I always believed in that process. And we had been doing a newsletter for the longest time. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if we could change the newsletter to a magazine. So I brought the idea back to our team and I said, I want to, I want to look into this. I want to try this. So 
we looked at, you know, what kind of content we had, we brought in a magazine consultant to advise on how to lay out a magazine, how to you know get ad sponsorships because advertisers in your magazine tends to raise the legitimacy and the credibility of your magazine. So one of the young ladies in the office said, you know, we at the time we would sell, I think we sold a million dollars or a million and a half dollars worth of Croc shoes, you know, those plastic shoes. She said, I bet Crocs would buy an ad. And, and so we went to Crocs and we said, you know, would you take the outside back cover? Because it was a recognized brand. You know, so we, we started going to our suppliers like Crocs and said, would you take the outside back cover and help us promote your products in our stores? And they said, yeah. So then we went to Scott's Fertilizer. We went to a few other suppliers and we had a half a dozen suppliers that sponsored the magazine. At the end of the day, I went from a eight page, two color newsletter to a 32 page full gloss, full color, beautiful product. And my net cost at the end of the day went down. But we were the only retail store, like a regional small store chain that was publishing their own magazine. So th that was the concept. That's how it was born. And um, eventually that, that caught the eye of other garden centers across the country, friends in, in the industry. And they kept bugging me. Could you do the same for us? And I kept pushing them off. No, 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 no. But eventually I went into a meeting and I said, you know, because they said, you know, keep a lot of the content the same. Keep the articles the same. We, I just want my name on the front cover, a few pages inside. I want me to be the welcome letter instead of a letter from the editor instead of you. You know, be it about my store. And uh, I went in, put this program together, kind of a semi-customized magazine program. And I thought, you know, if we had if we had six stores sign up, this might be an interesting opportunity or sideline business. And I walked out of that meeting after a half an hour or so and uh, had 12 purchase orders. And because I was leveraging the client list of other people, I wasn't building a magazine business one subscription at a time. I was building a magazine business 10,000 or 20,000 people at a time. Our debut issue of our Home and Garden Magazine program had a distribution four times larger than Canadian Gardening Magazine, which is the largest gardening magazine in the country that had been in business for 125 years. And I thought, this is really interesting. So we get into the publishing business. Ah, oh, what a great story. And so is that still one of your publications, that uh, Home and Garden Canada thing? It's still a part of our mix. But we've, so since then, we've grown. And, you know, we started doing my insurance agent or my yeah, my insurance agent. He said, you know, that that home and garden magazine thing you're doing. He said, we're in the same boat. We're not competing with Home Depot and Costco, but we're de dealing with the Geico's of the world and the insurances and, and so on at the time. And he said, these big national players are eating a piece of our pie. So I want to grow my commercial insurance business. Could you do a business magazine for us? And, you know, of course, I, I you know going through birthing of giants and being part of the uh, scaling up community. I knew a lot of business contacts. And I said, sure, you know, we can coordinate some content. And so we started a business magazine and then that quickly became the biggest part of our business was doing working with insurance agencies. And now we're doing, we're working with um, medical spas. We're working with real estate agents. We're working with thought leaders. We're working with conventions. Like we just did a magazine for the consumer electronics show. I mean, some really big names and some big brands out there. And it's kind of cool. And then, of course, that evolved and, and we embraced, totally embraced digital a few years ago. And 
now it almost starts from with a digital strategy and extends into the magazine. So it's been an interesting ride so far. It's interesting you mentioned that the advertisers bring quality, to, uh, give give a sort of a quality feel or to the magazine. But do you then, how hard do you have to work to make sure that the content, the written content is is compelling? Do you want people to pick it up and read it and think, I'm glad I read this and not Homes and Garden? Or you're trying to do a different thing so it's less important? At the end of the day, any publication that you put out in, whether you're publishing content online, digitally, or in print, it needs to have, and I always remind people of this because they forget about it. They think, okay, it needs to be value-added. You know, I need to teach the reader something. And that's absolutely true. However, there also needs to be an element of entertainment. And I'll I'll go back to my example when I started working, uh, when the insurance, my insurance agent said, you know, could you do a business magazine? I said, sure. So we sat down said, okay, 32-page magazine, how many articles? So about 13, 15 articles. Okay, so I need to find 13 articles about insurance. And I said, Luke, if you do that, like you got to remember, you're targeting business owners, you know, a, a, across the region. You're not tar- targeting insurance specialists. I said, if you put out a magazine all about insurance, people might pick up the first issue, but it'll be the first and last one that they, they pick up. Because who wants to read all about insurance? I, <laughs> no disrespect to the industry. So I said, my recommendation is, how about you let me coordinate 10 of those 13 articles with general business content? You know, have an article about sales, about marketing, about HR, about strategy. Do a feature story about, you know, a, a local business. And then you, with the customized content, you decide on what products and services that you want to push. And let's make sure that there are a few articles in there about, you know, cyber liability was a big issue, you know, an upcoming issue at the time. And have you thought about cyber liability insurance? You know, so have a few articles like that. But the magazine in general needs to have an element of entertainment as much as it needs an element of value. So you, you really do need to engage the customer. So readability is key because otherwise you don't have any vehicle to get your advertising messages across. Exactly. And that's one of the compelling things about, and, and, and I think, and still to this day, so we started the company about five, six years ago, and still to this day, I don't know any other company that does a customized magazine program. There, there are a handful that do customized newsletters, and we do newsletters as well for those who want it, and sometimes that's the right vehicle. But you know, a magazine, just the layout of a magazine, you can have the same content as a newsletter, but a magazine with the visual, you know, being visually engaging and, uh, you know, being very creative in the, in the layout of the magazine, it adds that entertainment value and it adds, it feels a little bit more leisurely when you're reading through a business magazine as opposed to, you know, a Harvard Business Review, which is a white paper closer related to, you know, a traditional newsletter. So, that entertainment value is really important to keep them coming back. Okay. Andy, I want to take you back to the business before Tulip Media. How did you end up in that business? And then tell me your story because it, it's a hell of a ride. Sure. So I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. My parents started a small retail home and garden center. And I was working there since I, I actually, you know, I've been working, I grew up on a farm. I've been working since the age of six. That was, I tell my kids, they're both in competitive sports. I said, my competitive sport was working. 
I didn't do any sports. But at the age of 12, uh, we built the built this new um, little re- retail home and garden center. So I grew up in that. Uh, after business university, I, I came back and I, I took it over from my father when I was 25 years old. And, you know, we grew it. I, I remember we did a little expansion and, and it was uh, it was a small business, but, you know, it, it was one I grew at 48% in sales in two years and really became a profitable little, little business. And in 2003, I was accepted and I started the uh, MIT, the Birthing Giants program. That's where I met Vern, got exposed to the Rockefeller Habits program. And I think it was in 2005 is when I hired my my own coach, and that was Les Rabinovich. And so I started embarking on this Rockefeller Habits process, which is now scaling up. And during that, I started, you know, I, I, I it opened my eyes when I joined, I joined EO when it was YEO back in the day before they rebranded. So I joined Young Pres- Young Entrepreneurs Organization and that whole e- YEO and uh, Birthing and Giants opened my eyes to the possibilities. And I saw this business and the potential of just skyrocketing. So I already told you, you know, I, that's when I met Vern, that's how we started the magazine. And part of my secret sauce of owning the ink was we were going to be the, the retail garden center chain that w- was publishing its own magazine. I, at the same time, I wrote my first book, which was about retailing and the, the motive and the goal behind the re- retailer's roadmap to success was to teach people about how to properly retail. But the whole idea was I was going to build, you know, a three or four locations, prove the concept and then franchise it. Of course, my birthing a giant's class, it didn't help or it didn't hurt that I, you know, I, we had people like Brian Scudamore in that group and, uh, you know, and, and others that were big, you know, were really making a success out of franchising. So that's what I was gearing up for. And we grew very quickly. So from the period of around, I don't know if it was the first or second year of birthing a giant's to when I brought on a coach. And so we, we had grown the business by 800% in about five years. And in 2007, I, I started a major expansion. So we were building the flagship store that was going to be the model we were going to use to replicate. I had uh, I had swung the whole deal myself uh, with our banks, and you know we did a we invested six and a half million dollars in this new location, all the equipment. Like this was state of the art. This was a flagship uh, store that we were going to use to to replicate with. And did that, started the retail, on track to start the, to launch and to open the retail center in the spring of 08, along with the landscape construction division and the whole works. We had fleet of trucks, the whole works. And uh, it was in the spring of 08 when just after Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, you know, the recession was, hadn't quite hit yet, but the banking industry was being shaken up. I get a call two weeks before we open the doors and it was my banker saying that the bank unfortunately has downgraded the risk rating for your industry and where one third of your risk rating is the industry race risk rating, your risk rating has been downgraded by one point as well, just the way it worked out. And I said, so what does that mean? Just tell it to me like it is. And she said that essentially through no fault of your own, you no longer qualify for the loans you have. And, and she said, you can expect that the bank is probably going to call the loans. So 
we two weeks later we open the doors <laughs> we launch fully staffed everything's going well like from the public's point of view major success we leverage our brand in new in 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 a, in a, in a third mark the third marketplace the third uh region and two weeks after we opened i actually got the letters the registered letters came in the mail and gave me i think three months or four months to fix it I negotiated some real estate deals, some, you know, I'd sold off some real estate assets to uh, sale off and lease back. I was partners in the real estate, but we had it all set. You know, we were opening up this store and I was on the growth mode. So I was actually negotiating land for the next location in another city. And um, when all this happened and, you know, I remember a mentor of mine said, you better put every growth plan on hold until you deal with this. So, Kibosh, I got out of that. Uh, I optioned a piece of property. I got out of that and uh, focused on the new store opening and dealing with the banks. And, you know, we dealt with that and, and we extended it through these real estate deals, getting out of some debt and so on. And we extended it for a period of about 18 months and uh, went through bankruptcy restructuring or bankruptcy protection and, and restructuring. And uh, it came down to a moment when a uh, Tuesday morning, when I got a call at eight o'clock on my cell phone and it was the bank and it was a guy, it was actually the receiver from the bank who I'd been dealing with. And uh, he said, um, there's no easy way to tell you this, Andy, but we're coming in in 30 minutes. If you want to tell your staff, you can tell them now. So first of all, you know, I kind of sat there. I just crippled right down. I was I was outside. I sat on a curb. I was in one of our uh, properties and I just, holy, uh, I'll leave the words out of it, but it hit me. I like, a, I, I felt like a punching bag for 18 months, but this was the last blow. So I first went in and my father happened to be there. So I told my father what uh, the phone call had just happened. He said, I'm leaving. <laughs> and he just left. He just, he couldn't handle it. So he left and went home. I called my managing partners in all the different areas. I said, get everyone on your teams together, whoever's in the stores, whoever can call in, call in on the conference line. I need to make, make an announcement. They all knew what was going on. We were open book and we, you know, I told them we were what we were going through. So they all, I wouldn't say they suspected, they didn't suspect it at all. But when I made that call and said, we need to get everybody on a conference call in 10 minutes, they kind of knew what it was about. So I made the announcement and, um, you know, it, it was, I was on the phone for 20, 25 minutes and, uh, you know, there were a lot of tears shed and sure enough, they were five minutes late showing up, but 35 minutes after they walked in the front doors of all the locations, locked the doors and we were basically escorted out the back door. It's, it's a surreal oper uh, experience to go through that. Because you'd been fighting hard for 18 months to keep it. And did, so did that, did that phone call from the receiver, was that a shock? It was a shock because we had actually, we had restructured. So we had amputated parts of the business. You know, we down, we, we self downsized parts of the business and we had put our latest offer was, if you can believe this, it was for 92 cents on the dollar for what was owed. And we thought for sure that it was going to be accepted. We had everything lined up. The financing was lined up. We had placed the offer, I think it was a week or two weeks prior for 92 cents on the dollar. And our our trustee, our, our receiver that we had hired to negotiate and to navigate through this mess 
said, yeah, for sure. I've never seen, I've never seen the, this bank not receive, not accept that. And um, I remember having a call and it was, yeah, it was two weeks later. It was two weeks prior because a week later I called him out and I said, Daniel, you know, I'm shocked that we haven't heard anything. He said, yeah. He said, I could tell you this for, for certain that this has gone up to headquarters. They are discussing this and this is being debated because you are a very public brand, a very public entity. He said, it's either going to work out in your favor or it's going to work out against you because they're either going to not want to seem like the bad guy in the community and the, in the marketplace and closing down this, you know, this small entrepreneurial family run business, relatively small, or they're going to say, okay, here's a big public profile company and we're going to make an example of them, you know, to show that there's no negotiating through these economic turbulent times. There's no negotiating down your debt with the bank. You need to own up to your debt. So he said it could really go both one of both ways. And unfortunately, it went the wrong way. And it was a very, very public bankruptcy. Within a day, the TV cameras were at locations like I was being followed. And it was very, very public because we, we, we just had a brand that was really well known in this region of the country. So, you know, I called up uh, several mentors, but one, one was actually a longtime form member of mine from EO and very experienced guy, very smart guy. I called him up. I said, you'd never believe what just happened to me this morning, happened a couple hours ago. He said, you know what you need to do? You need to call your local chamber of commerce, set up a press conference and shame them into taking that offer. So I actually tried that strategy and I had all these cameras. Chamber said, we've never done a press conference before, but we're going to make this happen for you, Andy. So I came in the next day and all these cameras were on me. And I basically explained, you know, this is what happened. This is the series of events at a high level, like I described to you. And I said, uh, you know, it, shame on you for not accepting, you know, 92 cents on the dollar. If that last 8% is really that important, give me two weeks to get that for you, to raise that money and get that for you. And kind of put it out there publicly because I stopped talking to them. They, they stopped taking phone calls because the negotiations were done in their part. So I put it out there publicly and the news broadcast all over uh, that night. I still have a recording of one of them. It said that the latest offer was 92 cents of the dollar, but Biting is expecting to provide a new offer for 100 cents of the dollar within a week or two. And I did that and they still turned it down. And they thought that they could uh, they could get a lot more of the liquidation than like my 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 offer was riskier than the liquidation. Huh. Did you end up finding out? what they managed to get for the asset disposal or did they sell the business as a going concern to somebody else? They actually dismantled the entire thing. And that was, that was an interesting experience in and of itself too. I'll tell you the, the, the original store, the day of the liquidation, I actually was in the backyard building a playground set for my daughter. Cause I, I was working night and day my wife came out and she said, how, how are you? Are you okay? This is the day of the liquidation, the first day of the liquidation event at the original store. And I said, you know what? It feels like, what was the analogy I used? I said, it feels like I died and the whole town is showing up to the, for the reading of the will, to see what they can get out of it. Because the store, I get, it was packed. Like it was, there were cars up and down the road and, you know, just, they could not, shove more business through that store than they did in that first day of liquidation. 
And it was really hurtful. Like it was really, really hurtful. I didn't want to go anywhere near it. I just couldn't. So from the uh, inventory and equipment, they made out really well in the, in the liquidation. But the real estate assets, they didn't do their homework. And the zoning was not, they assumed all the properties that they seized were all zoned commercial. And some of them were zoned agricultural because of, you know, home and garden centers. We were, we fell under that. And some of them were zoned future development. And, and there were some different zoning issues they could not get over. And they could not sell these big plots of land as commercial land right in the center of the city. And because we had kind of, uh, to keep our taxes lower, we, we kept it as agricultural and it allowed us other benefits too. So they did, by simply not looking at the zoning of the properties, they really shot themselves in the foot. And they ended up selling one, I know one piece of property sold for 60 cents on the dollar. The other one sold for 30 cents on the dollar. They just, it was a very, very elementary, stupid mistake on their part. And had they known that, because it was interesting, it was, it was two or three months later, the company that was charged with selling off the real estate called me and said, will you come back to the table? They want to deal with you now. <laughs> because they, they couldn't sell to anybody else. You know, because by then, the, the, all, the whole gardens, it was just a skeleton of its former self. There was nothing left. It was just pieces of property. And um, at first I was excited. I said, you know what? Give me a couple of hours. I'll get back to you. I drove over immediately to my father's house, who was always a mentor, you know, my first mentor. And I said, you know, here's the call I just got. The bank wants to talk to us. The bank wants to sell the properties back to us. And he actually talked me out of it. He said, you know what? It was a good business in the 80s and the 90s. It's getting tougher and tougher. This is a tough business. And he said, uh, another mentor of mine said, it said something, and my father referenced it. He said, think of what Bob told you when everything went down. And that mentor, longtime mentor, said that, you know, the way I looked at it, you did a really good job in a really bad industry. Why don't you go do a really good job in a growing industry? And my father actually talked me out of it. And I called him back and I said, you know what? Sorry, we're just not interested anymore. And I thought I needed that. Because I had always held out hope that I would get back into that business, but I needed that closure on my terms. It felt like, basically, it's that uh, saying, you know, you you know, once you close one door, another one will open, and I needed that closure so that I could mentally move on from it. And that was the that was the day, and that was the moment when I called him back and said, "Yeah, we're out of the picture now. No interest in coming back." And um, that, that, that's when we moved on. That's when I started the magazines. And by then I was already getting certified and, and scaling up. You were saying when we were talking before we were recording that uh, the, the reason you ended up in coaching was somebody reached out and said, look, you've been through this. I need your help. Yeah. And it was that summer that, yeah, a good friend of mine I'd known for a long time. And uh, and I was chatting with him. We were I know, had lunch or coffee or something. And uh, he said, so what are you going to do now? And I talked about these different things. I said, but the way I look at it right now is before I had, I had money, I had no time. Now, for the, probably the only time in my life, I'm going to have all the time in the world, but I don't have a lot of cash. And he said, well, you know, if, you, if you've got a lot of time, I need help. And he had a business and really needed help. I was familiar with the business. And he said, we really need help turning this around. 
He said, I can't afford to pay you a whole lot, but I'll I'll put you in a small salary. And I said, you know what? what it, while I'm figuring this out, I'll spend it. And I actually spent the next six weeks in his business every day. And we made some major changes, turn it around. And he said, you're really good at this. You should consider doing this for other businesses. And I was talking to my old coach because God love him. He, he stayed with me right until the very end, even though I don't think I paid his fees for the last six months. I did end up paying him back afterwards, but um, he would not leave my side during every during the whole ordeal. But I was I was chatting with him and and uh, catching up, and he said, "If you're getting into consulting, you know why don't you come on? You know why don't you get certified and and become a gazelle coach back at, the, at that time?" And um, yeah, that's how I kind of fell into it. And so you now do a bit of coaching in your spare time when you are not running Tulip Media. Yeah, so now I split my time up. Time up. I'm one of three major partners in Tulip Media. Our, our staff, we have, a, I think, a, yeah, a number. Most of our staff actually own some shares too. But there's three major partners. I'm one of three. But I'm on the face of Tulip Media. The staff run it mostly. Like we embrace, you know how it works with the scaling up process. You embrace it fully, and you can free up time. And that's what I've done. We've embraced it fully. We have a staff of, I call them partners, you know, because they are partners in the business, whether they actually own shares or not. And they run the day-to-day. They take care of things. You know, it's incredible. I hear about major issues after it's been dealt with, and it's really cool the way it's set up. So my friends, my close friends will joke and my wife will joke that a bit of OCD with my planning and everything else. So I track my time. And so I spend on average probably two, depending if I'm traveling, two days a week in in Tulip Media, two, maybe three days a week in total. But, you know, it gives me, I have my office, my home base. And I also spend a couple days a week on average coaching other companies. But so I keep a small roster of about four to six scaling up clients that I really enjoy working with. And I always consider, actually, the mental shift I had in the last year was I consider Tulip Media my biggest scaling up client. I just happen to be the face of it as well. Okay. So treat your business like you're a coach rather than a manager. And that's how that's the secret to getting getting your time back. Yeah. And it's actually, it's because it, it's really been the last six months, you know, I look at everything and and ask myself, you know, because because I'm the face, I'm the one that does presentations and so on. I follow the the mythology like 100% where, you know, Vern talks about have your Monday meeting. I, I need to be in the office Monday because we have our sales meeting, our, ta- our marketing meeting, our tactical meeting. You know, we do uh, every week we do weekly learning. So I'm part of all of that back-to-back meetings most of the day on Monday. But then I can leave Tuesday morning and not come back till the next Monday. You know, I'll still call in for our huddles every morning. And I still get our dashboard is emailed to us at 6 a.m. every morning. So I'm still on top of everything. And being part of the huddles, I can also be on top of where the stocks are and where, you know, somebody might need me to make a phone call or two here or there. And not that I don't take calls throughout the run of the week. I do a number of different phone calls, but for wherever I'm at at the time, and yeah, outside of presentations where I am the face, I do a lot of uh, keynotes and presentations for the company. So that takes me, that takes a lot of travel. But by looking at it that way and being part, being a coach to the business, I'm always looking at it thinking, I don't need to be doing this. 
Stacy could do this, or I don't need to be doing this. Jessica could be doing this. And uh, delegating off constantly. And if something lands on my desk that shouldn't, I just turn it right back. Said, you know, you got this. Just tell me, you know, if you're stuck, let me know. But I'm not doing it for you. Fantastic. Andy, if, is there something, uh, it's a question I ask all the guests on the show. Is there, a, is there a piece of knowledge that you've got now, a thing you know today that you wish you'd known at some other point in your life? Yeah, it's interesting because I look back at my whole experience. I'll actually share, share two things. One, my whole experience, and then one as a scaling up coach that I think most businesses miss. Um, but from my entire experience, you know, I look at, uh, I've always surrounded myself, myself with mentors and mentors that have been extremely successful and have done extremely well in their life. And, um, you know, one of them said one time that the difference between successful people and really successful people are the really successful people have a low pol- low tolerance for pain. And, you know, I look back at my experience and the things that I've done, not just with the Green Village Home and Garden and uh, landscape business, but the, um, you know, other endeavors, because I've had other earlier in my career, I've had other businesses and ventures that have, have failed or, or, you know, have some have succeeded, some have failed. I would say that low tolerance for pain thing has really stuck with me because I always had a very high tolerance for pain. And I felt looking back in my life, I took too many risks and I took too many risks, you know, with my, with my own, not only my own money, but other people's money, other people's investment, meaning, you know, the staff. I mean, when we lost the the former business, we had 125 employees and, you know, the ironic thing with Canadian law, uh, bankruptcy laws and so on and business ownership laws, everyone, you know, so, you know, 125 people were on unemployment insurance on day two. And of course, you know, with, with the Canadian laws, I was the only one not eligible. So I didn't have anything on day two. But, you know, there was that many people that lost their jobs. And that's always haunted me. That's always haunted me. That's always made it, made it very uh, difficult for me. So, I look back and I've taken more risks than a lot of my mentors have. One of them I keep, I, my closest one I, I think about often is, is, you know, if he's not 95% certain he's going to make a good dollar in something, he just doesn't do it. So that low tolerance for pain is something that I thought I needed to take risks at a young age. And I, you need to take calculated risks, but I pushed the boundary too far and it came back to bite me. So from a personal standpoint, that was what my one, there, there are ways to make a lot of money where, where you don't have to risk a ton and, um, you know, mitigate the risk. You know, I even did, I've done some real estate development as well. And even with that, you know, I structure deals where everybody wins, you know, I, I make sure all those ducks are lined up before we spend big money. And, you know, I don't like taking risks now. As much as I used to, um, and the other one is, you know, from running a business, and I've seen it with with Tulip Media, I've seen it with my endlessly with my coaching clients, is people make all the difference in the world. People will make or break a business, and you know, if you're not proactively, you know, we have all heard the the tools or the strategies around. You got to build your culture by design. You know, that's not a small thing. That's a big thing. Make sure your core values are very, very, very clear. Make sure you're hiring to your core values. You know, a lot of people just give that lip service. You've got to do that. And when they're hired, you've got to always develop your people 
and hold them uh, accountable. And the analogy I always use, and I've seen this with every single one of my coaching clients, and it's probably one of the biggest values that personally I, I see as a coach that I bring to the clients is the whole top grading process and it, not just for recruiting, but for regular talent assessment. And, you know, the analogy I use is, you know, as a business owner or operator or CEO or manager, you're, you're, you're basically, you're a sports coach and you're trying to field the best team possible. Now, if you're a basketball coach, you can coach, you can, you have a say over who's on the team, who's the starting lineup. You have, you have a lot of influence on in how to coach them, how to make them great, but you also need to look at your team and when they're not cutting it, they may be great people, hard workers, but they just not talented basketball players. You can't jump on the court and do it for them. You can't play the game for them. You need to coach from the sideline. So sometimes you need to make those decisions to let people go. And I see that all the times people don't let poor performers go quickly enough. And, you know, it is all about people and doing that regular talent assessment. And the other thing I say, you know, you don't see a basketball coach at the beginning of the season put together his team or her team and not assess the talent until next year when they put together their team for the next season. They're assessing their talent every practice, every week. They're formally doing it. They're mentally doing it all the time. But yet in business, we hire them. And we don't think about it, how well they're doing until the annual performance review, which I've got whole issues with that whole process as well. But you get to measure the talent on a regular basis. So the process that I bring and the, the, the structured discipline process to that is every quarter, review the talent of everybody on your team and look for the ones, okay, you know, who are the eight players? Make sure they're happy and challenged. Oftentimes you can double down, you can double their productivity. Who are the B players that you need to either coach up or if they can't make it and they're never going to become an A player, maybe coach them off the team or move them into a different position, whatever you need to do. And the C players, and quite often as an outsider, we can say, okay, why are you keeping Johnny in that position? You know, he's been a C player now for three quarters or two quarters even. It's too long. And people don't assess their talent and upgrade and top grade their talent enough, regularly enough. I suppose it's some of these conversations I have with people about annual appraisals. At one level, I feel as though I'm the problem must have been solved because they've been broken for so long. But I had uh, I had a meeting with a senior colleague or a colleague in a works for a large UK financial institution, and he'd had his annual appraisal just uh, just before Christmas with his boss, and his boss told him everything he'd done last year was all the wrong stuff <laughs> over twelve months. Hadn't pointed it out at all, all 12 months. And he was just, he was just mortified. And therefore he hasn't got a, you know, you know, therefore you, you don't get a pay rise and, you know, your grading is low. And, and I said, what do you reckon? Do you reckon you've had some clear guidance from this year? And he went, no, it'll be another lottery, whether I, uh, what my grade is in 12 months time. And you just think, what a waste of time. Just stop doing it, everybody. I know. Well, and the, the way to get around that, one of, one of the easy ways to get around that, because uh, I'll have clients say, could you help? Could you review and look at our performance evaluation process? This is no, I don't need to do that. Show me your scorecards. That's what we'll spend time on. Because in a performance evaluation, like the story you just shared, the challenge is the person comes into the performance evaluation thinking they did a good job for the company. The boss comes in, no think believing that they did a poor job. And one client I had early on, he said, every year performance evaluation is like World War Three in here. 
and said, well, show me your scorecards. You know, a lot of people may not have scorecards, but job descriptions, whatever you have, show me those. Yeah, we meant to get those done a couple of years ago. <laughs> if I'm working for you, Luke, if you don't tell me what a good job looks like and give me ways to measure it and to objectively say, I had a good week or a good month or a good day, whatever, then I'm going to make my own assumptions on what a good job is. And if you don't tell me any different, it's kind of unfair on you to say, Andy, you know, in the last 12 months, you did, didn't do a good job. What do you mean? I did everything I thought you wanted. You never told me any different. So be clear on the scorecards, coach often, and evaluate your bench strength regularly. Andy, what books do you think that have had a di- made a difference to you that you think people should pick up and read? I read a ton. Um, yeah, I read a lot of books. My old go-to used to be uh, Good to Great, but that's like 15 years or 20 years old now. Still, you know, still a classic book. And, and uh, love Jim Collins, but that's good. Yeah, anything he puts out is good. I would say one that I recently read that just sticks out as one of the better books that I've read in a long time is Simon Sinek's latest book, and The Infinite Game. And it's given me a different way to look at business and, you know, how, how you, business is an infinite game. It's not, a, it's not a sports game. It's not a football game where, you know, all the players are playing to an agreed upon set of rules. There's a beginning and an end. You either win or you lose. The infinite game of business is, yeah, you may not hit your objectives this quarter, but you might hit them two weeks into the next quarter. Does that mean you're you you know you're losing? No. And, and and conversely, you might hit your quarterly objective six weeks into the business or into the quarter. Does it mean that you've won and you're done? No. You got to keep going. It's an infinite game, and I and I found that it just philosophically, it, it's changed the way that it's altered the way that I look at business and playing it for the long term, as opposed to you know I've got to show some good results this quarter or this year, either through my uh, rock, you know, accomplishing my rocks for my boss or whatever, or for the bank, for the covenants, for the bank, or for the business itself. You are in an infinite game and it does not end. And when people think about that, and especially founders that I work with, you know, I always ask them, what's your exit strategy? And no, no, I'm not going to sell the business. No, no. Every founder exits their business one way or another. What is your strategy? Because you want to start thinking about that and you want to plan for that because something happens to you next month. What's going to happen to the business? I'm sure you don't want it to close up. It's an infinite game and you've got to think about it that it's going to be around for a long time and and strategize that way. Fantastic. Brilliant. Andy, thank you very much indeed for being on the show today. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a ton of fun. Yeah, I appreciate the invite. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to Dominic Monkhouse dot com forward slash podcast and there you'll find some fantastic show notes additional reading and links relating to this episode you can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter 
The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.